Um, So we're starting in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we, must, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. This is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening to everyone online. It's wonderful to be here together in this winter day. And uh, just before we dive into God's Word tonight, I thought it might be a lovely thing for us to dive into prayer with our Lord and talk to Him first. So let's do that. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your grace to us. We thank You for saving us in the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to be comforted in the knowledge that You have done everything necessary for us for salvation. If we don't fear death, Lord God, then we don't fear living either. Help us, Heavenly Father, to get the right balance tonight to understand how your gospel can help to orientate us in our lives day to day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been hearing a lot of voices recently saying that it's time for the gospel to have a bit of a rebrand. 
Um, there are all sorts of people in the world today saying that the simple gospel message of what Jesus has done 2,000 years ago just isn't cutting it with people in modern Australia. We hear voices like that from time to time drawing us to this or that latest trend or fashion and it seems sometimes like some people are trying to add to the gospel. It's good to believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead, but there's so much more to Christianity and our works are really important. The question of the passage today is, do we get saved by grace or are we also needing to be saved by works in somehow as well? And we're looking at the Great Council of Jerusalem as they struggle with that idea. Well, as we come out of COVID, this idea seems to be even more personal to many of us, doesn't it? It's not just that people out in the internet are talking about it or around church leadership and having big meetings around Australia to discuss how important the gospel is and how we should live our lives, but it's also important for us individually too. I want to ask you the question tonight, have you got your compass bearing in life back since COVID started to loosen up a bit? I know COVID's not gone completely, but life's getting back to normal a little bit and we're starting to work out how we get our work going again, aren't we? Do we go into the office three days a week or two days a week? Uh, what, what things are COVID safe, what things aren't? Should I go to week away or not? Or should I give it another year just in case everyone gets sick at week away? How do you make your decisions? What sets the compass bearing of your life? Now, for me, that's been a bit of an issue um, on a lot of levels, uh, family, work, um, just my own you know, personal health even, like making decisions about what I should do with my activities. But for me, it's not the first time I've had this kind of a pause in my life to consider where my life is going. Uh, this year is the 30th anniversary of Soul Revival and every now and again we'll share a few stories from the beginnings of Soul Revival as some of you will yawn even as I say that because you'll know we share those stories anyway even when it's not the 30th anniversary. Uh, but I do like every now and again just to celebrate what God has done amongst us. And I remember back 30 years ago when I was a young adult, I was 21, 22, I was going to uni studying and I'd been asked to run a youth group. And my challenge in running a youth group is that we only had four or five kids left in year nine and ten at Guymer Anglican Church. And so I've been given this task to run a youth group. I talked my, my then girlfriend Louise into joining in with helping and two other young adults. And we sat around wondering how are we going to get young people to come to church? And it was kind of the era where the uh, REM song came out, you know, Losing My Religion. It was a fairly good descriptor of a lot of people in my generation, Generation X, who seemed to be losing their religion. Young people seemed to be leaving the church in droves rather than coming to Christ in droves. And I actually thought, does the gospel need a rebrand? Maybe the problem with the gospel is that it's just not cool anymore. We come to church and we go to a youth group in a daggy Sunday school hall with dusty floors and old pictures of paintings that kids had done a decade ago that still somehow managed to stay on the wall with blue tack somehow, pins. Do, does the gospel need a freshen up? And to start off with, we thought, why don't we just be cool Christians? Let's be Christians, let's tell the gospel, but let's do it as cool people. Maybe our work can get the gospel to freshen up. And I remember thinking, well, what is the gospel? Well, Mark chapter 1, 15 gives a good definition. This is what Jesus says the gospel is when he started his ministry. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Well, that's pretty good news. Jesus brings the kingdom. If you want to join the kingdom, you need to repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and by God's grace, by your faith in Jesus, in Christ alone, you can actually be saved. Yeah, that's true. I believe that. Romans 3.28, Paul says, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of law. I knew that, 
that I couldn't do anything to earn my salvation. But I still wondered if the gospel was enough. Maybe I could do something to make the gospel cooler. Maybe as a youth leader, maybe I could do something that the gospel didn't have power in my generation to do. And I say that to my great shame. Because I'm going to illustrate with this uh, picture that's going to come up on the screen just how foolish I was to think like that. Now this is a, a, an Australian classic picture, painting, sorry, classic painting. Does anyone know who painted that painting? Tom Roberts. There you go. It's fairly popular. It's called The Bush Rangers. Now, you'll notice that there's some guy nonchalantly leaning up against a stagecoach looking inside. He's not just having a chat, finding out how the people inside are going. He's probably trying to liberate their purses, take their jewellery and maybe a gold watch or two. Just so that the uh, people in the, in the cabin don't get carried away, there's another guy just near the horses with a gun. He's sort of looking on. And I love the guy at the front. This is my favourite part of the painting. Look at that bush ranger. He's almost looking bored. Yeah, come on, just give us your stuff. We're going. And at the back, there's another bush ranger. So these poor people in there got no choice. The guy up the top who seems to have a gun behind his head is just sitting motionless. He doesn't want to get shot. So there you go. That's Tom Roberts' famous story of a bush ranger's um, adventure taking over a stagecoach. Now, I think I can improve on this picture. So I thought to myself, I don't know how long Tom Roberts took to paint that painting, but I spent about 17 minutes adding this to it. Because I thought to myself, the picture would be so much more exciting, wouldn't it, if a policeman arrived right at the beginning of the stagecoach robbery and said, hey, you bushranger dudes, stop robbing the stage. And that took me 17 minutes. I don't know how long the painting took, but that took me 17. But there you see his gun. Can you see his gun? He's got his blue shirt on for his policeman. He's got his black pants on, looking quite stylish. I was even able to manage to make it look like it kind of went down in the middle there for a little belly that he's got. Great expression on his face. Hey! Using explanation marks as he talks. He's got his blue hat on. Now, does that improve on that painting? No. <laughs> Can I suggest tonight <laughs> that anything we try to do to add to the gospel is going to take away from the gospel and it won't be the gospel anymore? If I walked into wherever that painting's hung up, in Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne or wherever it's... Where is it, Jules? Art Gallery of Sydney, with my spray can, went in there, drew a picture of a, a dude, it would not be appreciated. And likewise, the, the story today is about how people have come and spray-painted their own logic on top of the gospel. The beautiful gospel, that, the beautiful gospel story that God has painted for us so beautifully, uh, in Acts chapter 15, there is now a disagreement. There needs to be this big disagreement around does grace save us alone is the painting good enough by itself or does there need to be works to save us as well now when we look at this passage this is the question is salvation by law or grace because the particular works they're talking about in this generation is the jews who have become christians and now confronted by the fact that many many gentiles have become christians and do they need to become Jews first before they can become a Christian. So in the passage we have in front of us tonight, there are four parts. The first part is a disagreement where that disagreement is played out. There is a discussion in the second part. The third part of the passage, there's a decision on what is going to be the way forward for the church and then the development of the church after that. So that's what's going to take place in what we call the Council of Jerusalem. It's the first great council of the church. So what's the story so far leading up to this, uh, this big controversy? Well, 
By this time, uh, the missionary movement of Paul and Barnabas has gone out from Antioch and they've spread the gospel right across Cyprus and Asia Minor. You'll remember in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that we're told in Acts by Luke that the gospel will go from Jerusalem to Samaria, to Ju- sorry, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So right up until now, in the first 14 chapters, we've seen how the gospel has gone out from Jerusalem, Judea to Samaria, and now we come to the first great breakout beyond that, which is Asia Minor. Now this is a difficult establishment for the church, and it brings a new dimension to the story, because you see that the people who are in in far majority being converted are not Jews, they're pagans, they're Gentiles, non-Jews. And the question is, do these Gentiles share in all the blessings of the Jews? See, the Jews saw Christianity as a sect of Judaism at this time. It was just part of Judaism. And you can understand why, can't you? Jesus is a Jew. Jesus met in the temple. He talked in the temple. The early church, we're told, in early Acts, continued after they were established to meet in each other's homes and in the temple. So in many ways, it wasn't a big jump to see a logical conclusion that Jewish Christians were making that Christianity was really just the fulfilment of Judaism and it's the process that saw Christianity bringing to a logical end the Jewish story so you couldn't actually just jump to the end of the book that'd be cheating like any good book they saw it that you had to read through the whole story in order to be able to become a Christian they saw the way to become a Christian is that first of all if you weren't already a Jew you needed to become a Jew first. Now, there were those who were called God-fearers, who were Jewish people who were interested in Judaism. They participated in the synagogues, but they didn't actually go through all the law. For example, often they didn't get circumcised. But for people like Cornelius to be described as a Jew-fearer is quite a logical thing for Jews because the story of the the gospel up until that point for them was to draw people to the kingdom of heaven which was only for Jews. So when Jesus says I've come to bring in the kingdom of heaven repent and believe the good news that made sense that language made sense and the timeline for the Jews made sense. So the conflict that was brewing was that Paul and Barnabas were preaching to Gentiles but they weren't taking them through Judaism first into Christianity they were just going through one door which was Jesus. And so the Judaizers are like, hang on, hang on, hang on. You're going a bit quick here. You're throwing out all the law of Moses and all the stories we've been told about becoming a Jew, circumcision and all the law, and you're going straight through Jesus into the kingdom of heaven? Hang on, that just doesn't make sense because for the Jew, you need to go through two doors. You need to go through the Jewish door and then through a second door. And Jesus was behind the second door, not the first one. Does anybody... Think of a movie that comes to mind as I talk about that. He's tricky like that, Jesus. In the movie The Hunt for the Wilder People, there's a fantastic scene of a funeral and the preacher gets up and he says to the congregation, there is a door and what is behind the door? And someone says, Brussels sprouts or something like that. He goes, no, no. And then someone else goes, he goes again, what's behind the door? I'm paraphrasing, can't remember the exact scene, but something like, What's behind the door? And someone yells out, Jesus. <laughs> Jesus behind the door. And he goes, no. No, behind that door is another door. <laughs> and Jesus is behind that door. And in the movie he goes, he's tricky like that, Jesus. And that's exactly the story of what the Jews were saying. You have to go through the door 
to, through Judaism to get to the second door before you get to Jesus. And so the big conflict that's brewing is that Paul and Barnabas are going around Asia Minor telling people that if you want to become part of the kingdom of heaven, you just needed to be saved by what Jesus has done, not by your adherence to the law. You don't need to keep the Mosaic law. You don't need to be circumcised first. You can just simply come to Jesus. So this was what brings us to the disagreement. The disagreement is in verse 1 of our text from Acts chapter 15, verse 1, and I'm going to read it to you. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you have been circumcised according to the custom by Moses, you cannot be saved. There's the two doors. They're literally saying, these Judaizers who've come from Judea to Antioch, that you have to be circumcised. What's the context here? Well, Antioch is a city that's to the north of Jerusalem, but it's below Jerusalem because in the middle of Israel, even modern-day Israel, there's a big mountain range and Judea is on top of the mountains and Israel's on top of that mountain. And so it was quite often that people would say that you would go down from Jerusalem or go up to. In my parlance, I'd say I'm going up to Brisbane or down to Melbourne, but that's not the context here. It's actually geographically elevation here. But these Jews who've come to Antioch, they've come to the new capital of Christianity in a way. This is the new place where the gospel is really thriving and it's the place from which... Paul and Barnabas were sent out. Now, these false teachers who've come up have not been sent by anybody in Jerusalem. They've just taken it upon themselves to rein in this, this uh, Gentile expansion because they can see that the Gentile expansion is going to outpace the Jewish conversions and before long, there's going to be more Gentile Christians than there's going to be Jewish Christians. So if someone doesn't go up there and circumcise all these Gentile Christians, things are going to get out of hand. Now, they go up there and um, there's a big argument in uh, verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go down to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. Now, the book of Galatians was written about this time, just before this chapter. And we get a bit more detail from Paul about what's going on with all this confusion. I'm going to read to you from Galatians 2, 11 to 14 to show you the context when Cephas, or Peter, who, who himself had come to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that in their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. Now in Acts, there's just a really brief description, but Paul's giving a bit more context here. This is heavy because Peter who had the vision in chapter 10 that he was to go and convert Cornelius. Remember the vision? All the animals come down in a big blanket and basically God says, kill and eat. And Peter goes, surely not. How can I eat a lobster? I can't do that. It's not part of the law. Well, God says, how can you make something dirty if I've made it clean? Go and kill and eat. Well, Peter has already been convinced, but then when these people have come from Jerusalem, the Judaizers, they've even convinced Peter. Also, Barnabas who in Acts is described as arguing with these people, he for a time seems to have been led astray as well. And interestingly, there's this sentence in verse 12, people who came from James. Now, it's a, there's a really interesting question over that sentence there. Um, there's a sense in Acts that these people haven't been endorsed who've come from Jerusalem, but could it be that James himself sent them? Now, James, we think the brother of Jesus, the leader of the church, 
And in a minute, we're going to see how James and Barnabas and Peter all speak up for grace, but there could have been a moment where they made a mistake. Now, thinking of Peter particularly, we don't have time to look at all of this, but imagine, imagine Peter making a mistake. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine Peter arguing with Jesus, saying, surely not, Lord? He would never say something like that, would he? Poor Peter, he's still getting his head around stuff. And the encouragement for us tonight is we're all still getting our head around stuff too, hey? So if you're trying to work out what the gospel is and what compass bearing it gives for your life, be encouraged, you're in good company. Because even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was having difficulties. Verse 14 in Galatians there. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, this is Paul speaking, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So basically what's happened is Peter has seen the big lobster Mornay come down from heaven with other associated things, so I can't get the lobsters out of my head. They must have been on the sheet. He sees that. Then he sees Cornelius become a Christian who's a God-fearing Gentile. Then he eats with the Gentiles, but then somewhere along the line, someone's nipped in here and even Peter has been tricked by false teachers that he's got to withdraw again from the Gentiles and stop eating with them, be like a Jew. And Paul's going, Peter, you've lost your way. Your compass bearing is wrong. Again, that's an encouragement to us tonight because sometimes we lose our way. And sometimes our compass bearing gets lost too. Well, let's go back to uh, Acts 15. Acts 15, verse 3, they've sorted out the problem and Paul and Barnabas are being sent by those in Antioch to go down to Jerusalem to talk with all the elders and sort this problem out once and for all. In verse 3, they travel down through the territory and everywhere they go, they keep preaching the gospel. One would like to imagine they're probably trying to get some um, support here because they're about to go to the capital, Jerusalem, to talk about this stuff. So as they go down through the towns, they talk to people about it. And when they get to Jerusalem in verse 4, they have a formal acceptance. And when they get there, they tell the story of what God did. Now, this is really important. They tell the story of what God did when they went out for the months and months that they've been travelling around Asia Minor telling all these Gentiles about Jesus. They've actually gone back one step and instead of arguing about circumcision, they're saying, Let, let's pause for a second, let's start. Where, what, what is God doing? And you get that sort of language through Acts. For example, in Acts 14.27 you see it. On arriving there, they gathered at church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So the significant thing here is that it's not just Paul and Barnabas deciding they're going straight through one door to Jesus, that people are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's not Paul and Barnabas's decision. This is God doing this, they're saying, you see. And in verse 5 of chapter 15, this is what we read, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And the problem here is these guys weren't listening. And they were guys because they're all men in this, in this council. But these Jewish, these Jewish Christians who were arguing for a two-door Christianity, that works needed to be a part of salvation, and that works was to become a Jew and follow the law, they don't 
be persuaded by the argument, they just get angry. They need to be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Now, it's interesting that there's two things there, because being circumcised is part of the law of Moses. So it's interesting they're focused on this physical, practical symbol of being a Jew for men, which is circumcision, as a part of the law of Moses as well. Now, I think for them, they're having a crisis. And their crisis is, what is my marker that I am saved? Because I used to have a marker that I was saved and part of the kingdom of heaven when I was a Jew. What is my marker now that I'm in Christ? Is my marker still being circumcised, following the law of Moses and believing in Jesus? Because that's a pretty safe place for me to sit. Now, we might look on that and think it's strange, but it's not really, is it? Because as Protestants, what is our marker for being saved? How do you know tonight that you are part of the kingdom of heaven? If Jesus has done everything for you to be a Christian and you can't do anything to be a Christian, you might sit there sometimes with your thoughts and wonder, am I actually saved? Will I actually be in the kingdom of heaven? Because you haven't done anything. Well, the gasket has been blown in verse 5. And I think what follows will help us if we sometimes doubt whether we're in the kingdom of heaven because a discussion opens up which is really helpful. Chapter 15, verses 6 to 7. The apostles and the elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And verse 6, he highlights basically what they've decided to do, he's taken up as a mission and he's gone and done it. In verse 7, he starts five points about that mission that I want to run over really briefly that help us with our issue of how are we saved. Let's see what Peter says. He stands up and gives this great speech. Um, Before I do, actually, it's one of three speeches in this council, one by Peter, one by Barnabas and one by James. But Peter takes the first one and I think that's actually quite beautiful Because wasn't Peter, according to Paul in Galatians, actually not sure before Paul came and reminded him? Well, now he's sure. He's got back on the the horse again. And and that's, again, an encouragement to me and probably an encouragement to you too that our God is not just a God of second chances, he's a God of third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. So if you sometimes stumble and fall regularly in your faith, keep persevering. Because remember what chapter 14 told us, God is the one who is at work in you, not just yourself. But we are so works-based, aren't we? You see how this keeps flipping in our minds? In verse 15, uh, 7, we see the first thing he says. Basically, past revelation has taught us that faith in Jesus alone is all we need to become a Christian. Peter gets up and he... It'll be up on the screen, I won't read through it all, but he reminds them that uh, 10 months ago in chapter 10 of Acts... Cornelius has become a Christian and he says that uh, brothers you know that some time ago that's what he's talking about God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips now that was significant because he is the apostle to the Jews so it's quite interesting Peter says that God chose the apostle to the Jews to be the first one to bring a Gentile to faith not Paul Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles you'd expect him to be the first one but no God's really grounding this in the work of grace So looking backwards, that's what he says. The second thing he says is in verse 8. Again, it'll come up on the screen. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. 
So the astounding part of the story of Cornelius is even though he was a Gentile, he received the Holy Spirit with the gift of tongues and with fire and wind, the same as the Jewish believers did in Acts chapter 2. And what's going on there is God was showing all the believers that the Gentiles were not second-class Christians. They had not had to go through two doors to become a Christian. They could just go straight to Jesus. You don't have to go through Judaism first. We see that backed up, by the way, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we may receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. See, God does not give the gift of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers or to, to people who aren't going to heaven. The third uh, argument Peter makes there is in verse 9. And basically there, he says that when people became Christians, not only Cornelius, but also those who Paul has been ministering to, uh, it says there, he did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now that's a reference to the fact that their lives changed, their hearts were purified and they changed. Again, it's a good point to, to pause in the sermon and have to think about yourself. Do you see yourself changing at all? I remember right from very early on as a little Christian, people used to say to me when I said, I don't know if I'm saved. And they'd say, well, do you see yourself changing? Are you growing? And I'd say, yeah, I can see that. Well, that's exciting. Because Peter here is the third reason that, uh, and evidence that, um, that, that, that Gentiles don't have to become Jews first is that they change, just like the Jews did. The fourth reason is the law can't save. Now, we don't have time to unpack that. But the whole idea of the story, the whole idea of the coming of Jesus is that the law of Moses couldn't be kept by anyone. It was a difficult yoke around the necks of the Jews because they kept failing over and over. They couldn't obey the law of Moses. Sure, you could get circumcised, but you can't stop sinning. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Don't put the law on them. We're reminded of Jesus' words and he says, My yoke is light. Come to me, all you who are heavy burden, and I will give you rest. The fifth thing he says there, the last great evidence, is that the miracles have come with the Gentiles becoming Christians. Acts 15, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that have been done among the Gentiles. So if it's not enough for God to give the sign of the Holy Spirit to prove that the Gentiles could become Christians simply through the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, with no works of law, then if there was more that needed to be said, there were miracles that you can read right through there too. This brings us up to the decision. What's going to happen? James stands up again. Brothers, he says in verse 13, listen to me. And then he basically goes on and says that, uh, in Acts 15, 16 to 18, that what Peter was saying about looking back is a good place to start when you think about this issue being resolved. Because he reads from Amos, the prophet, and he says this, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I'll restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. And basically what he's saying is, right through the story of the Old Testament, we've been waiting for this day. So how can we get upset if God chooses to give the Gentiles direct access to the kingdom through Jesus and his work alone? So the difference, what difference does all this make? 
Well, the great thing about James is he didn't leave it with we're saved by grace alone. That's basically his decision. After Paul and Barnabas stand up and argue for grace alone, argue against the Judaizers who are teaching the law, James has said, yes, I agree, definitely. You are saved by grace. He's basically reiterating what Jesus said in Mark chapter 115. And by the way, if you're looking for a good compass reading for your life at the moment in these hectic times, Mark chapter 1 verse 15. I read it every morning when I get up because it's one of the first words Jesus said when he began his ministry to describe what he'd come to do. He said, the kingdom, I've come to bring the kingdom, repent and believe the good news. That is so beautiful. Because even the repentance I have and the belief I have, the scriptures tells us, comes from somewhere else. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 9 and 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by work, so that no one can boast. What I love about the writings of Paul, as he's thinking of the council of Jerusalem, it's always in the back of his mind everywhere he goes. The infection of the false teachers is also everywhere he goes. But everywhere he goes, he continues to use the same arguments all the time that Peter uses. Set your compass on the gospel first before you do anything else. If it's a decision at work, if it's about a conflict in your family, if it's how do I deal with the sin in my life, how do I deal with the pain I'm going through coming out of COVID, I just feel discombobulated. In every single thing, whether it's a good decision or a bad problem to face, start with grace. God's grace is sufficient for you. He's given you everything you need to go through this life, through Christ Jesus. Even your faith is a gift. And if God is able to give you that gift, what is the outcome? James goes on and says in verse 20, don't think that works has no place in the Christian life. Don't think that this argument about, about faith and works is about deciding between the two. What he says, though, is the only way you can be saved is if God's grace is sufficient for you, that he's given you the faith you have for repentance that you've done so that you will believe in Jesus and you can be a part of the kingdom. But what that then means is that that faith, that grace flows through into the rest of your life. Peter hinted at it earlier, didn't he? Because he said their hearts had been transformed. Well, James finishes on that point and it's really helpful for us. He says, what we'll do is that we need to make sure that we say that these false teachers are wrong when they say that works leads to salvation. Just like that silly drawing I did on that painting has no place on that Tom Roberts painting. So actually, none of our good works affects our salvation in one iota however our salvation affects our works and here he says in verse 20 and i'm going to leave us with this instead you should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from meat of strangled animals and from blood okay there you go do you reckon you can do that <laughs> saved by grace don't drink blood don't strangle an animal don't be sexually immoral and stay away from food polluted with idols. What is that talking about? It's another sermon, actually. But I'll tell you what I think is going on there. Either James is still growing 
and he's saying to the church, yes, you're saved by faith, but don't, you know, go too far with your freedom. Could be possible. Here's some restrictions. He seemed to be saying before, you're freeing Christ. But what's he saying here? Could he be restricting them? Well, I don't think so. I'll tell you what I think he is doing. I think what James is saying is don't get involved in idolatry or sexual immorality. Don't get involved in idolatry or sexual immorality. What he's saying there is it's one thing to say you don't have to go through Judaism first to become a Christian, but it's another thing to think that you can be a Christian and still partake in all those earthly things that you used to do as a Gentile. Because the Gentiles would worship other gods with sexual immorality by eating food that was offered to idols. Meat strangled uh, of strangled animals was also used in liturgical practices of pagan idolatry and also the drinking of blood. So he's not saying don't have a black pudding with your Yorkshire pud, as I used to think he was. I actually think he's saying don't get involved with idolatry and don't yourself become sexually immoral. Unfortunately today, a lot of Christians think that Christianity is just an ideology that you can believe and think about. But James here is helpfully saying it's grounded in our practice. If we have values, we will have behaviours. And just like he's saying, don't behave like a Jew to the Jewish Christians, he's saying, don't behave like a pagan if you are a Gentile Christian. What he's saying is, don't add to or take away from the gospel because it's not the gospel anymore. Don't syncretize your faith with either end. Stay in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Set your compass bearing all the time so that we stay away from worshipping something other than Jesus. I'm going to pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for that clear message. We pray, Father, that you'll help us not to add to the gospel. Help us, Lord God, to trust in your direction. And as we live our lives and make choices to follow Jesus and not other things, may it be really clear how we should love those around us and those who are far away. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.